0: It's wonderful to be here with each and every one of you today. We have a wonderful crowd and we appreciate so very much your presence. If you consider yourself to be a visitor here today, we would hope and pray that you feel as you are. And that is our honored guest. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, I wanted to preach a sermon on abounding in the work of the Lord. And may I say as an introduction before we go any further into this passage or the things that we're going to talk about. I will give the congregation here credit over time and praise for the growth that we have all had. We have seen growth uh, evangelistically and we've seen our numbers increase and we've also seen some that have really grown in the faith. We have young men that are desiring to do more for the cause of Christ. We have three new teachers here that are teaching and growing in Christ and we have other areas too where we have grown as a congregation. But as we enter the year 2019, there are some things that we need to improve upon if we want to continue to grow, and myself included. How is it that we can abound in the work of the Lord? How is it that we can make sure that the congregation that meets here from time to time in Bakersfield exists for another 50 years if the Lord tarries? These are things we have to consider. And may I say, we have to consider them now or they will not happen 50 or 100 years from now. It has to be now. I want to talk about some of these things. The great Apostle Paul said this. This is from the New King James. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Very interesting, the word steadfast. The idea or the concept of being steadfast really is the opposite of giving up. It is the opposite of giving up. I got to tell you, there's some things that I really don't understand in my life. I don't understand how it is sometimes that we have to almost beg people to stay faithful. And sometimes we want it so bad for them. But at some point in time, it has to mean more to them than it does to us. If someone wants to lose weight and they hire a personal trainer, the personal trainer wants it really bad for that person. But at some point in time, it has to mean more to that person than it does to the one who's encouraging that person to make changes in their life. What's it mean to be steadfast? It's the opposite of giving up. It literally means constantly moving ahead. And may I say as we enter this year, if you're going to remain faithful, you have to make the determination in advance that you are going to do nothing but constantly move ahead in your Christian life. You have to make that choice. You have to make the determined resolve, that's what I'm going to do and that's what I'm going to be and I'm not going to be anything else in my life other than a faithful child of God. But it's interesting, it says steadfast, and I just said that that means to constantly move ahead, but then he says immovable. So how are you constantly moving ahead and being immovable at the same time? This word immovable means this, it means never distracted to the side. Your eye has to be single. You can't be distracted to the side. Remember in Luke chapter 9, I won't go into this very far, but Jesus made the concept too. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus was talking to those would-be followers, and he told one that said, I'll follow you, just let me go bid them farewell at my house. And we know what Jesus said. He said, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. What Jesus brilliantly did, he quoted an ancient proverb that dated back 800 BC, and it means this. You cannot plow a straight furrow if your eyes are looking back. May I say this, you cannot successfully live the Christian life if your eyes are peering back to your former life of sin with fondness and all the wonderful thoughts and memories of what happened before. Jesus said you have to turn loose from your life of sin. That's the same thing Paul is saying. You can't get distracted by the peripheral issues of life and the sinful things that come your way. Your eye has to be single and you have to press forward. You have to be steadfast, constantly moving ahead and never distracted to the side. And then he said this. I love this. He says always, and first of all, always means all the time. Not every once in a while. You see, you can't live the Christian life every once in a while. You can't do that every once in a while. You can't get excited and motivated every once in a while. He said, as you do this, you are always and for all times going to abound in the work of the Lord. It means resolutely pursuing our goal. Abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, everybody in life would love to be successful that's the truth everybody wants to be successful but there's a saying you know what it says success is uncommon it is not to be achieved by the common man and do you know why that is the reason is everybody would love to be successful because that makes you feel good it makes you feel like you achieve something right But not everybody is successful. And the reason for that is success is not a goal. It's not. Success is not a goal. Success is a byproduct of doing the right things right all the time. That's that's what success is. My dad used to say, it's a matter of doing this. It's a matter of making habits of doing things that failures don't like to do. The hard stuff. So success is a byproduct of doing that kind of stuff. It's working and abiding and laboring. And then you be successful. So what's it mean? By the way, have you ever heard somebody say, now don't overdo it. You know, somebody, it's just my personality, but that's just how I am. But um, I tend to overdo it um, with things I do, working out or whatever. And I've heard my whole life, well, don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. Somebody might say, well, you know, I'm going to be a Christian. Oh, don't overdo it. I had a friend tell me one time in college, I think you're making a too big a deal about this Christianity stuff. You're taking it too far. What does Paul say? He says that abounding means to go beyond or overdo it. If we're going to be successful, we have to overdo it. That means we're going to go beyond what is normal, go beyond what is easy, and press even harder. Now, it's a matter of going to the extreme of our limits, to overdo for the cause of Christ. Now, in chapter 16 and the first 12 verses, you could pull out about eight different things that we can use as examples on overdoing it or abounding in the work of the Lord. I've chosen for. i I've chosen four. Number one not going to spend a lot of time on this, but number one, obviously, is in the first two verses of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. One way that we can abound in the work of the Lord is liberal giving. Now, I'm talking about liberal giving from not only monetarily of our means, but also of ourself. Liberal giving of ourself in every aspect of life, specifically in the first two verses, Monetarily. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So, understanding this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, but this I say He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, what's interesting about this, this is an investment. Have you ever stopped to consider that everything you do for the cause of Christ is an investment? Now, i got to tell you, this is where sometimes people in the religious world get this all messed up. It is true that if you sow, you sow in a certain way, you will reap in a certain way. But the denominational position of prosperity preaching is this. If you give more, you're going to reap more for your own enjoyment, for your own benefit, for your own pleasure, for your own reward. But you know, the reward for giving more is in heaven. We are laying up treasures in heaven. That's the reward. So what does he mean by this about how we sow and how we reap from a practical standpoint? Here it is. I believe with all my heart that God gives to givers. Not so that they can reap the benefit of it in their own life and be rewarded, but so that they have the ability and the capacity to do even more. So when you overdo it and you give liberally, you will reap liberally and you'll be able to do even that which is more. That's what it's about. It's about being able to do that much is, that which is more. It's an investment. It's an investment. Now, I know sometimes people are poor. And just if you wonder about that, I'm going to talk about that. Sometimes people are really poor. They don't have much. You know, Jesus, when he was sitting there at the court of women, noticed as he looked across there, and there was the woman, the widow, that gave two mites, which, by the way, is one quarter of a penny. If you want to notice it in monetary means today, it's one-fourth of a cent. And he looked at all the others that were giving, and the coffers were being filled with these rich people. They gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her necessity. In other words, they gave out of what they had left over in abundance, and she gave out of her necessity. My whole point telling you is this. Jesus said she gave more than all of them because she gave all she had. That is a Christian principle not only in the giving monetarily of our means, but also the giving of our life and service to Christ. She gave all she had. You know, in the Philippines, Don and I, I don't know that we have spent any time except this year talking about money. And I think the reason is, is because they're so poor, it's a third world country and their poverty level is so high, so we don't spend a lot of time talking about money or giving of your means or anything like that. But it's a subject that needed to be taught on. In fact, at the preacher study in Rojas, Don's topic was... He talked on benevolence, and he talked on the scriptural pattern for benevolence, both personally and congregationally. And my topic was on the contribution, the treasury, and scriptural uses for the Lord's money. And in that, even though we understand that they have nothing hardly, they still have to give. We all do. That's the work of the church. We all have to give. It doesn't matter what you have, you still have to give. And it's an investment. It's an investment. And I think that all of us need to remember that as we continue to live the Christian life. All right, number two. This is very important. We have to have a vision for the future. You know, in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said this. And I'm not going to make a bigger deal out of what Paul said because I don't think he really meant that to be the point. But we have to make a point about this. Verse 5. He said, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. For I am passing through Macedonia. I use this verse to show that we have, we, as a passage to show that with vision means you have to have a plan. We have to have a plan of action in every aspect of our life. And when you have a plan, then you have to have objectives to achieve that plan. I use this passage just to show that Paul was not satisfied with the status quo. Paul was always talking about and thinking about another place to take the gospel and spread the gospel to another place. So he says this, I have a plan that I want to come and see you when I pass through Macedonia. Now, I made this point just to in my introduction about the congregation here. And I, I don't know. Um, I could ask Darren right now. He'd probably tell me to the day how long the church has been here. But over 50 years. And you know when I got to thinking about this last week? I started thinking about all the, ca- the congregations in California that had to close their doors and sell their buildings and shut it down. You know, even before my time, Some of you older folks can remember all the churches that existed in the Los Angeles area. What about all of them? Remember those? All those down there? Now we have LAX and Covina. And we have one, very small, in Anaheim. What about going north? What about all the congregations north that used to exist? And now... You just keep on driving and you pass towns that once had the light of the gospel shining forth and now they're no longer there. What about around here? What about around here? What about congregations that were close by here that no longer exist? If we don't have a plan now, we'll be in the same boat when it comes time down the road and everybody dies. We got to have a plan. And we got to be able to work that plan. Now, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that we have, not, we have not suffered negative growth. Meaning this. You know, we've lost a lot of people. If you go back a number of years ago, I mean lost to death, to passing away. But if you go back years ago, there was one family, the Jostling family. I preached nine funerals from that family. Nine. Over the last, uh, I don't know how many couple of years, six people or so, six, seven have died. People are passing away because that's life. That's what happens. And fortunately, we've baptized some folks, we've converted some folks, so we haven't suffered the ramifications of big negative growth. So we remain relatively close to the same size. Because we are converting people proportionate to how many we're losing. But can you imagine if we stop doing that? We get smaller and smaller and smaller. We have a challenge. We have a challenge ahead of us. And I say this to you. Please hear me. I say this to you not as a negative. I'm not a negative guy. Buddy of mine said this to me not long ago. Preach a friend of mine. Good buddy. He said, you know what? There's three kinds of people. There's people like you meaning me, and then there's another kind of guy, and then he says, and then there's me. I said, oh, what does that mean? He said, you know what you are? He said, you're kind of the, you're the positive football coach that gets in the locker room and tells his team you can and gets them to believe that they can. He was that's you. He said, then there's the, the person up in the stands that says, man, we got no shot. That's the negative guy. And I said, where does that put you? He said, well, here's me. You've already lost the game. You just don't know it yet. I'm not the negative guy, and I never will be. I choose not to do that. I will never do that. But I'll tell you this. It doesn't mean that a positive person cannot preach something negative. And it doesn't mean that I can't make a negative statement. I'm going to make one now. Please hear me. We have a challenge, a huge challenge, and a huge task. You know what that is? taking the greatest story ever told to people, and the majority of the people that hear it don't want it. That's fact. So what? Jesus said, and few there be that find it. That's what Jesus said. Our job is not about the result. Our job is about the effort. And you know what? When the Lord comes back, Do you know the Lord is not going to say, Frank, let me see, how many? How many did you get? How many did you get? Did you, did you hit the number right? No, he's not going to do that. But he's going to know whether I took the gospel to people and spread the seed of it. He's going to know that. He's going to know if I did my part. We have the majority of the people that are around us. We're trying to take the gospel to people that are so busy with everything else, that becomes their religion. And you just plug it in, whatever it is. Just too busy. So what's going to happen? What can we do? I'll tell you exactly what we can do. It has to change in the family. We have got to change the family. We've got to get the family where the family needs to be. And I'm talking about the structure of the family. The structure of the family. Wednesday nights we're studying now about the structure of the family. Where the man is fulfilling his role in the home. And the woman is fulfilling her role in the home. And structurally they have it right. Now I'm going to say this to you. Can you imagine what we could do together? If you as families would pull together... Get the structure of your family right and go shoulder to shoulder with me as an evangelist, laboring among you with our sleeves rolled up, working together. Can you imagine what we can accomplish? I'll tell you this all successful works in the body of Christ that I know of today, all successful works are works where the evangelist is working among them and families are working to support the work. Yeah, working. I'm an evangelist. It's my job to evangelize. Can you imagine how it would be if families would pull together and start strengthening those that we convert so the evangelist can continue and preach the gospel and do the work of an evangelist? Can you imagine how many people we could save, as Linwood Smith said one time, if we didn't have to keep saving the same ones over and over? I'm going to tell you something, families. I need you. Yeah, I said it. I need you. The work needs you. The future of the church needs you. We got to do better. You know, more people today, I think, are looking for churches more than they're looking for the truth. I think that happens. So let's take a look at this. We're talking about planning. We're talking about a vision. Let's look at a passage that's found in Proverbs 29 and 18. Notice, Proverbs 29 and 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, what does the word vision mean? I've already established with you that the reason we put that up for uh, for Paul's uh, plan was to show that a vision includes a plan. Got to have a plan. But Proverbs 29 and 18 tells us some rules about the plan. All we have to do is find out what the word vision means in this passage. That's all we got to do. All we got to do is go to the New King James and it tells us what it means. Here it is. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. That's what the word vision means in that passage. And revelation is the word of God. So what I'm saying is, in our plans, it has to not only include revelation, but our plans cannot go beyond revelation. can't go beyond the Word of God. It's not about programs. You know, sometimes people in the religious world, they'll say, you know, it's not about the programs. We have the programs, but it's not about the programs. It's about this other, and the programs shouldn't draw you in. But they have the programs, and the programs are drawing people in. You see the point? Most people are looking for a church that has what they're looking for instead of what the truth is of the Word of God. So, in our plan, it has to not only include the Word of God, it can't go beyond the Word of God. Now, vision. Vision, by definition, is dealing with an appearance. It is that which comes into view. In the Lord's church and in this congregation, we have a fourfold vision. It's fourfold. And here it is. got to see a lost world. We have to see a saving gospel. We have to see that the world is lost without the gospel. And finally... We have to see our responsibility in taking the gospel to a lost world. Let me show you the importance of that. Give you an example of that. Here's an illustration I used to use many, many, many years ago in in another sermon. But I love it. I think it fits. There was a wise old Indian father that had three sons. And he decided he wanted to give all of his possessions in life to one of his three sons that showed the greatest prowess and the greatest promise. As a test, he pointed to a mountain that was bold against the sky, and he sent all three of them up the side of the mountain, and he gave this instruction. He said, the only thing you have to do, the only requirement is, when you come back, you have to bring back in your hand a token to show how high you climbed. The first son wasn't gone very long. When he came back, he stood before his father, and he opened up his hand, and in his hand was a white wildflower. His father knew exactly how high he climbed because he knew that grew just above the timber line. The second son was gone for a long time. When he came back, he stood before his father, and he opened up his hand, and in his hand he had a red flintstone, which showed the father he made it almost to the top. But the third son was gone for a long, long, long time. When he came back, he stood before his father. He said, Father, in my hand, I have nothing. Because where I went, there was nothing to bring back. But he said, Father, where I stood, I stood on the mountain. I stood on the summit. And I overlooked a valley. And I saw two great rivers join the ocean. His father said, it's been my life's ambition that one of my sons would have seen what you have seen. You stand here as it were with nothing in your hand to show for your travels. But you have a vision in your soul, the greatest of all. The point being in our life too as a Christian, you may look back on your life and you may say, wait a minute, I got really nothing to show for it. But if you can say that where you have gone, you stood on the summit and you saw the two great needs of... Human need and soul starvation join the ocean of life. If you can say that where you've gone, you've seen that and you did all you could, you'll have something far greater. You'll have a vision in your soul, the greatest of all. Number three, this morning, there's something else we have to be. It might sound kind of odd at first, but we have to have a sense of flexibility. You know why? Because sometimes plans change and you can't get discouraged and quit because it did. And if you run into a roadblock, so what? You got to keep going. You got to have a sense of flexibility. Paul did notice this. First Corinthians 16, 6 and 7. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while. Notice if the Lord permits. Everything we do has to be with the provision if the Lord permits. Do you know why? Because when you make plans, there are two things that are uncertain. Two things that are uncertain and two things that you have nothing to do with. Number one, the uncertainty of life. And number two, God's providence and God's will. So you have to subject in our planning, in our vision, we have to subject it to the will of God. 1 Corinthians 16, 6 and 7. What else? How about this? James 4. And James was condemning presumptuous planning. That's planning that basically presumes that everything is going to be exactly as you have described it to be or planned to be. You don't think about God at all. So here we go. Come now you you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such a city, spend a year, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what, your, what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is either, either, even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You know, Paul had many dreams and ambitions For taking the gospel to the world. And I'm going to notice a passage with you that was in apostolic times. That dealt with miraculous visions. We don't have that today. But we do have the answer to prayer. We do have God's providence. But I want to notice something that happened to Paul. And just think about what if Paul would have got discouraged. Quit. Watch. Acts 16. Now when they had gone through Phrygia. Phrygia. And the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. What an amazing passage. They wanted to go to Asia. Spirit stopped them. They wanted to go to Bithynia. Nope. Spirit stopped them. They couldn't go east. They'd already been there. They wanted to go south. Couldn't go south. Spirit said no. They wanted to go north. Nope. Spirit said no. So they went the only way they could go, they went west, and they found themselves hitting the agency, and then, all of a sudden, they got the Macedonian call. Now think about it this way. What if they would have stopped too soon? I want to go over here. They said, okay, no problem, go over there. Oh, we can't do it, go over here. No, well, back over here. Yeah, you can go there. Sometimes plans change, and we need to be flexible with our planning and not get discouraged. When it doesn't happen. And I I really appreciate the, the, the brothers here. When they pray in our congregational setting. Because they always pray for the work. And I appreciate that more than you will ever know. Especially when you pray for me. And when you pray for me. And you mention me in prayer laboring among you. But pray for the work as a whole too. Pray for all of us in the work. Now watch what happens when we pray. In 1 John 5 and 14. Now, this is the confidence that if we ask, that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, you've heard me preach this from time to time. God hears the audible sound of everything. But this is a promise for the Christian. And if we pray according to his will with that provision, he hears us. What does that mean? The word here, W.E. Vine, presupposes a response. What it's saying is, When you pray, God's going to answer the prayer. And it may be no. So what? When you pray according to God's will, it's not a matter of you bending God to you and his will to you. It's about you submitting your will to God's will. And if you do that and you pray with that provision, God's going to answer our prayers. But fourthly and finally this morning, as we looked at a number of these things so far, We have to give liberally. We have to have a vision for the future, obviously. We have to be flexible. Everything's subject to the will of God. But finally, we have to be thorough. Now, I think thoroughness here involves a commitment. It involves a commitment. We have to be thorough. A couple things about this. Back to verses 6 and 7 again. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay with you a while. Paul understood, he understood the realities and he understood the importance of staying a while in the work. And may I say this too? I love to hold gospel meetings that go throughout the country and do that. We have gospel meetings here, and you know what happens? I'll tell you what happens. Oh, the preacher in. By the way, you know who the greatest preacher is? The, the next guy that came into town. The, the latest guy. And everybody gets excited. Oh, and we have somebody here that holds us a gospel meeting. Oh, it's wonderful. Everybody gets excited. Oh, it's cool. Oh, do you hear that? It's great. Then about Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week, the excitement goes away. And we just kind of, in time, start reverting back to what we've always done, right? kind of happens. But the work has to continue And the work takes thoroughness. And the work takes time. It takes time. Now, Paul was not a superficial guy. He was not a superficial preacher. In fact, I'll tell you, sometimes there's a lot of superficial preaching in the world today. This actually really happened, by the way. I can't even imagine being called this. But there was a preacher in some denomination whose... Preaching was so shallow. It had no depth. It had no meaning. It was so shallow. You know what they called him? His congregants gave him a nickname. You know what it was? Birdbath. He's so shallow, they called him Birdbath. Can you imagine you walk in the building? Oh, there's Birdbath. How you doing? Preaching is not shallow. Preaching is edification. Preaching the word is needs to have that kind of effect and may I say this too there's a threefold responsibility or threefold work of the church it's evangelism edification and benevolence and that is it now my job is to be an evangelist it's also my job to help in the edification but not just me it takes the teachers too I'm excited about this And I'm excited about the future and what what we might be able to teach here. I want to meet with the teachers really soon, all the men that teach, and brainstorm some subject matters that would help the congregation. Perhaps also getting some information and feedback from the congregation on subjects that they would feel would be helpful if they heard preach from the pulpit. To have some sort of a plan and a structure. That we stick to. So we can make sure that we are edifying the body of Christ. Looking forward to that. Listen to this. Let me show you how thorough Paul was. In Colossians 1 and 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect In Christ Jesus. That's pretty thorough. Then in Ephesians chapter 4. He talked about perfecting the saints. Or equipping the saints. And he said this. And he himself gave some to be apostles. Some prophets. Some evangelists. Some pastors and teachers. Look at this phrase here. For the equipping of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. You know what sometimes we do? We quote this passage and we add a comma. So we say it like this For the equipping of the saints, pause. For the work of the ministry, pause. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That's not what it says. It's one sentence. Look. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's you. That's you. It's my job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means it's not just the preacher, it's you. And it's my job to help and train and equip. What else? He goes further. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verses 15 and 16 says this. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted, by that which every joint supplieth. According to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body until the edifying of itself in love. Paul took the word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, to equip or perfect the saints. That's a work, and that's together. And that took time. You know, the first time he went to Corinth, he was there about a year. The second time he was there, he was there for about three months. He used the entire time to train and work with them. And I want to notice a passage found in Galatians chapter 4. I love this passage. You know why? Because it shows that there's a period of time for growth. In Galatians chapter 4, my little children, from whom I labor in birth again, Get this, until Christ is formed in you. You know why people struggle a lot? Christ is not formed in them. Do you know why they sometimes have priority problems? Christ is not formed in them. You know why they have attendance issues? Christ is not formed in them. We have somewhere around 60 here 60 or so plus in this assembly this morning. Wednesday night, we get on an average 17, 15, 17. One time we had 11 recently. Come on, we can, we can do better than that. Oh, we can do better than that. That's not good enough. You know what the problem is? And I want to say this so I'm not misunderstood. I'm not talking to the precious older folks that do all they can to be here and would be here if they could, but they can't get out. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking about those that have ailments where they can't get around and they're sick. I'm not talking about that at all. And I'm not talking about the fact that sometimes there are extenuating circumstances beyond our control. I'm not talking to you either. But out of the congregation size that we have, I guarantee you some people are just making a choice. And when you choose otherwise, you know what? Jesus Christ is not formed in you. He's not. Because if He was, you know what happens? Automatically, the Lord's number one. Automatically, we demonstrate that He's number one by our example, by our behavior. I want to challenge each and every one of you in 2019 I want to challenge every single one of you in 2019 that when a year goes by, let's look back and say that Christ was finally formed in me. Let's do that. That's number one. What do I need the congregation to do? I need you to, I'll do my part. I will work, I will work as hard as I can. I will labor among you patiently until Christ is formed in you. But you got some work to do. We all do. We all do. Christ needs to be formed in us. We need to stay faithful, folks. We need to keep plugging at it, staying in there, hanging in there. And if it gets tough, it's all right. If it's tough. Don't quit. Don't be superficial. We have way too much superficial Christianity today. On the surface. And that must certainly grieve the heart of God. But remember, if families will pull together And families will have Christ formed in them. Can you imagine what we can do together? I'm going to tell you what will happen. Instead of sitting back thinking, oh, look how bad it is. We may say, you know what? We may yet to see our finest hour. Now, I'm in it. I'm in it for good. But I need you every step of the way. What have we learned today as we close? We learn that if we're going to abound in the work of the Lord, we have to give liberally, not only monetarily, but of ourself. We've got to start doing that. We've got to be better, right? We've got to do better. Number two, we got to have a vision for the future. That's the plan. We have to plan our work and work our plan. And we're going to have such a plan. We're going to have such a work lined out. Still need you. But we cannot go beyond the word of God. We cannot go beyond revelation. Number three, we got to be flexible because sometimes things change and we have to submit everything that we do To God's will. And not be discouraged and give up if something didn't work. And finally, be thorough and realize this is not an overnight thing. I need you to be committed to the long haul. Commit to the long haul. Let's be thorough. And finally, please, please, please. Let Christ be formed in you. Change your life. Let's go be better. Let's go be better in the future than we've ever been in days gone by. I'm finished. Thank you for your kind listening. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com.